to borrow an illustration from a pastor friend of mine. Some of you have, may have seen that movie that science museums were featuring a few decades ago called Powers of Ten. It starts with a photograph of a, of a couple sitting on the beach on Lake Michigan next to Chicago, and you're looking at them, and then it pans back by a power of ten. So now you're looking at the couple together with some of the neighborhood, and it pans back again, and you see all of Chicago and more of Lake Michigan. Then it pans back again, and you see Illinois and Wisconsin and Indiana, and another ten, and United States, and then the whole globe, and then the solar system, and eventually the Milky Way showing you different things at each of these different perspectives, right? And then the camera comes racing back in, and now you're looking at the, the couple again, except now it, it then moves in by power of a 10, and, and you're looking at the man's hand, moves in more, and you're looking at like a hair follicle, and then further, and you see cellular structure, and then in further, and you see atomic life. The point is clear, I think. At each of these different levels, you see and you learn different things. And I think we do the same thing when we are looking at the Bible. We see some things when we look at the Bible's what are called natural literary divisions. That might be a psalm or a story or a parable. That's the couple on the beach, right? But then we can move in and look just at a sentence or move in even closer and just look at a word. What is that, what is that word saying? Or we can move out. We can look at that, that natural literary division, that couple, in the context of the whole book or a whole genre or a whole testament. And there's value from time to time at switching the order at which you look at things because the Lord has wonderful things for us all. And from time to time uh, in the life of this church, I have preached whole books of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, 1 Thessalonians, a number of others. You, could, you can go to chevroletbaptist.org and see different ones that I've done. This week, next week, in an early March, I'm going to preach 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and, Lord willing, early March, Titus, to get a view, a global view of those books. To get a global view, you might say, of, of the three books that are called the pastorals, right? Titus, 1 and 2 Timothy called that because it's, it's the words of an older pastor, Paul, to a younger pastor, Timothy and Titus. And the goal of an overview sermon like this is to take the weight of the book as a whole and rest it on our hearts. Oh Lord, what would you have for us if we were to sum up the message of 1 Timothy? Now, when you're doing a book as a whole like this, you, you can't get down and explore all the valleys and ridges and canyons that you might want to explore. So I'm going to say some things, read some verses, and you're going to be like, oh, can we talk about that? And I'll be like, yep, we're moving on. And if you have further questions, you'll have to maybe come up to me afterwards or talk to me or one of the elders throughout the week. There's going to be a number of that. But again, we're trying to get a weight, a sense of the globe of 1 Timothy that's what we're trying to do. And as I said, it's, it's a personal letter to Timothy. It's, all of Paul's letters are to churches except for four. First, second, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, which means it's a very personal letter. Turn to first Timothy. And let me just encourage you to keep the Bible on your lap open through the course of this term, sermon. I'm going to point again and again. And it'll just help you see and remember and follow along and kind of keep inside the sermon as, as we go along. Look at the first couple of verses of our book, at 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to, he doesn't say a church, Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, he says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we were to look at some of the other letters of Paul in the New Testament, we would see Timothy's name show up six different times, not to him, but in these cases, from him. In other words, Timothy had traveled around with Paul from city to city doing ministering. At one point 
in their gospel partnership together. They go to Ephesus, and then Paul leaves Ephesus to go to Macedonia, and he leaves Timothy there in Ephesus to do further work. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that, he's got a, he's got a job for him, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And I think this relationship between Paul and Timothy presents our first application, first lesson for us. Uh, the question for us is, friends, who are you pouring into? Who is your Timothy? I mean, none of us are Apostle Pauls, but we have to start somewhere, right? Following Jesus means helping others follow Jesus. So, so think around the room. Who are the people you're praying for? Who are the people that you're looking particularly, as you have occasion, to invest in? Uh, teens, uh, if you intend to follow Jesus, this applies to you too. Teens, you're not too young to be doing this. Who are you helping, trying to help follow Jesus? Uh, look at verse 3 again, because I think we see the point of the book as a whole right there. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, a sincere faith. Timothy is charged... What's the burden of book? Timothy is charged not to teach different doctrine. And the aim of this charge, verse 5, is love, a pure heart, faith. And then look at at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Now quickly flip to chapter 6. Look look at the very end, the last couple of verses of the letter. Verse 20, chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So so if we're looking at the bookends of the letter, we can see what the letter is essentially about. I placed it on the top of page 9 of your bulletins for note-taking. Off of page 9, amidst all the challenges and temptations to swerve, here's the point for us, amidst all the challenges and temptations to swerve, we must fight, keep the church, God's pillar and buttress of truth and the family of God, fixed on right gospel doctrine. And I want you to write in there, and right living. Right gospel doctrine and right living. And notice as I sum this up, I'm using that word fight. Well, that's because Paul uses the word fight. Uh, Look at 118 one more time. He tells Timothy to to wage the good warfare. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12. See, I told you, I'm going to point you a lot. Keep your eyes down. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now, more than once over the years, I've said to my daughter, daughters, I want to grow some fight in you. One of my jobs as their dad is to cultivate a right sense of fight in them when they're encountering difficulties and challenges and temptations in life. Even just yesterday, one daughter was dealing with a very difficult homework assignment and was tempted to maybe a little wither a little bit. And I said, sweetheart, what, 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 I want, what do I want you to have? And she's like, fight. I'm like, that's right. I said, okay, say it after me. Gah! I'm going to crush this. And she's like, Gah. I remember when another daughter was younger and playing softball for the first time and stepping up to the plate and a little nervous about the pitch coming. I'm like, okay. This is what you're going to say. I want that ball. Give me that ball. 
I want that ball. Give me, that's right, say that again. If you go up to the plate, I want that ball. And so Paul is speaking to a younger man in the faith, son in the faith, and he wants that bite, that grrr. Friends, that's what we want ourselves. The challenges and the temptations come after us to work that grrr, a fight, remain faithful, to regard the good deposit, right doctrine and right living in each other. Paul is commending to Timothy. Now, insofar as I'm trying to show you the globe, summarize the point of 1 Timothy as a whole, there's five temptations that you see in your notes, five temptations that I see together with a charge that follows temptations. And you can, you can write in the temptations as I give, you, give them to you. Number one, man-centered theologizing. Write that down. Man-centered theologizing. B- building doctrine through our speculations, you might say. He charges Timothy with guarding right doctrine and a right view of the law. You see it in chapter 1, the, the, the beginning, in the middle, chapter 4, chapter 6, at the end. It's the focus of the letter. Look at 1.6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And a right view of the law, look down at verse 11, a right view of the law will be in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. We've been entrusted. Now, some people in Ephesus were shipwrecking their faith because they weren't fighting with a grr in guarding good doctrine. Look at 19, verse 19, chapter 1. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Uh, flip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4. Yeah, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. I mean, he's, he's, he's trying to fasten us down in the words, the words of the faith. I want to get the right words in my sentences and paragraphs that declare what I and you believe that will fasten us down in the faith and keep us from shipwrecking our faith. Uh, look at chapter 6, verse 2. Chapter 6, end of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and with conceit and understands nothing. And finally, look at verse 20. So Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The temptation to swerve is perennial. It belongs to every time, every era. Now, we don't know a lot about the false teachers and, uh, that were in Ephesus and, and, and challenging the, the believers in Ephesus. They seem to have adopted certain views of the Jewish law that were leading them astray. Hard to know exactly but it was leading to vain discussions and speculations. Okay, I, I know Paul said these things, but let's, let's think about this. What, what if I'm speculating? And how easy that is to do. How easy it is for our doctrine to become man-centered. It depends on our works or it depends on our speculations opposed to God's truth. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me give you an example, a recent example of what I mean, and I, and I choose it precisely it's because it's so subtle. I'm not trying to pick on this particular individual, but I, I think there's something there worth observing. Last week, a prominent evangelical leader tweeted, for the life of me, I don't get the appeal of Jonathan Edwards to many. 
And the person went on to quote that line in a famous Edwards sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, about our lives being like spiders hovering over an eternal fire. Edwards is contemplating the final judgment in hell. And the writer shares her experience of coming to Jesus. She says, what drew me to God was merciful, beautiful Jesus. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm no big theologian, but I don't think you're a spider and I don't think God abhors you. She also observes, I got nothing if I don't have strong feelings. I'm happy to discuss Edwards and whether or not he's faithful to the Bible. In some ways, we know he was not. Clearly not. Let's look at the Bible and then let's look at Edwards. Let's do it that way. It was struck me about the tweet, and the reason it caught my attention is because she didn't argue from the biblical text. She argued from her feelings, what she liked, didn't like. To be candid, I don't like, I tend to like spiders. I mean real ones, like granddaddy long legs and riding spiders, Charlotte and all. It's a form of reasoning that philosopher Alistair McIntyre labels emotivism. It's, it's in some ways the reigning philosophy of our day. We know we can't trust truth as people present it to us or as God supposedly revealed it to us. Therefore, we, we look inside, we look deep inside to our, our, our deepest emotions and intuitions and, and feelings. It's the sort of thing... You hear when somebody says, well, I tend to think God is like, in which you know that whatever words the person says next will tell you more about that person than they actually tell you about God. Our culture is awash in emotivism, and even Christians, like this tweeter, can pick up the habit. I mean, after all, didn't we all growing up, listen, you can't... Students in my classroom, you can't finally trust the pastors or the philosophers or the policemen or your parents. Look to your heart. What is your heart telling you? We learned. Doesn't this lead to speculation about what I know must be true? And then the eventual shipwrecking of so many people's faith. See it all around us. Now, sometimes our hearts are right. The Bible is always right. We need to have a about that. Let's not speculate. For to guard the good deposit God has given to us in the gospel. Uh, look at what Paul calls the church. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. What is the church? It's the pillar and the buttress, the foundation of truth. It holds the foundation the pillar holds the house, right? The church is the pillar, the foundation of the truth. The, the nations rage against the Lord and His anointed one, says Psalm 2, but it's the church, and we're, we're the ones to hold on to it. The rest of the world, the rest of the nations would oppose it. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse saying, the, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, says Paul, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is the good news that above all else we're to protect with a gur, Right? Christ Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world to save terrible sinners like Paul, murderer of Christians. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's the good deposit at the very heart we're to guard. So if you're here this morning and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, this is the wonderful good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save terrible sinners like you and me, like Paul, the murderer of Christians. Or, or, or let me... Let me follow Paul's example and point to myself. I was opposed to God. I grew up hearing about Christianity and even some sense believing it from, from the time I was a young age. Yet in high school, college, 
I wanted the world, so I pursued the world. I hurt myself. I hurt others. I broke God's law. And yet Jesus, to demonstrate his perfect faith, came to save me. A testimony to that. And so is every other member of this church who could share the same testimony as Paul. If you have more questions about this, friend, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. The second temptation Paul is concerned with, which we discover in chapter 2, the despising of authority. The despising of authority. Uh, he responds by charging us to pray for and respect God-given authority. First, he, he talks about the authority of government. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, as, as, as Luke did this morning in his pastoral prayer. Why, why do we pray for the kings and so forth and presidents and, and Joe Biden as he did? Well, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Well, why do we want that? This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why should Christians pray for good government and insofar as we have stewardships, whether as a cupbearer to the king or as a voter, why should we work for good government? Well, because government, when it's doing its job rightly, provides the necessary conditions for the work of making disciples and salvation. That, that's what we see in these verses here. The, the government's job is to clear the path, smooth the road, set the stage, build the platform for the work of the church and disciple-making. We don't want a government that thinks it can offer redemption but one that views its work as setting the stage, acting as a prerequisite for the work of redemption. In other words, it builds the streets that you can drive to church. It protects the womb so you can live and hear the gospel. It strives to keep interest rates low to prevent usury says the Old Testament over, over. And a stable currency, as even Jesus alludes to when he says this belongs to Caesar, so that we can make money and our, our money can then be given to the work of missions, rendered to God. What is God's? It insists on fair lending practices so you can own a home and offer hospitality to non-Christians. It seeks to treat all people equally in these ways that so often hasn't. It protects marriage in the family by not redefining marriage or by kicking strict clubs out of the city so that husbands and wives can better model Christ's love for the church. It, it polices the streets so that you are free to assemble as churches. Uh, friends, who should you vote for in the next election? Well, vote who whoever has a right understanding, the best understanding, of government's prerequisite work to the work of the church. Now, a few verses later, Paul turns from authority in the nation to authority in the church. Look at verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Some argue that this only applied in Paul's day, but it's hard to maintain that insofar as the grounds he gives for this in creation. Look at verse 13. For, why that for? Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then look at chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Apparently it is a noble task to be an overseer, to exercise Authority. And finally, in the first verses of chapter 6, Paul offers a similar word to those who are stuck, can't get out of slavery. Get your freedom if you can, he says elsewhere, but if you're stuck, well, this is how you do it. Incidentally, this is 
clearly one of the canyons we'd want to kind of bring our plane down into and look around. I, I look at John's sermon from Colossians 3, verse 22 to 41. Go to the website, John's sermon from a couple of years ago, Colossians 3, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. It is an excellent treatment of slavery in the New Testament and how we are to regard it. It shows up, as I said, right there at the beginning of chapter 6. But the larger point right now is that a healthy church apparently is one where authority and the members respect authority. Clearly, this is a tough message in our day. Maybe you think especially so. Well, it's especially tough in Paul's too. That, that's why he's addressing these matters. What, what do we make of it? Well, again, since we're trying to get the whole globe, as much as we, we, I'd, I'd love to spend more time here, let me make three quick comments for now. Number one, authority as God intends it is not given for the good of the one in authority. It's given for the good of the one under authority. Authority as God intends it is given for the purpose of authoring life. It authors, authority, life, as God himself did in creation with his authority. He authored a world and then he calls us to do the same. You are pouring yourself out for the good to create life and growth and prosperity in the ones that you are leading. The ones you are leading should be stronger and protected by virtue of your good leadership because good leadership is the one to bear the costs. Bad leadership push, pushes costs down. Good leadership, good authority, draws costs upward into itself and bears those costs. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A very simple illustration of this. One time I was sitting on my couch and my sweet nine-year-old was in the room. I said, sweetie, can you go get me a glass of water? Because I knew the nine-year-old would be happy to get daddy a glass of water. Now, we can debate whether or not that was a selfish or unselfish thing of me to do, but notice what I was doing then and there in my heart. I was pushing costs of getting up out of the chair downward because I knew I could. Now, there might be other good reasons for me to teach my daughter to honor her father in those ways. Still, I know my heart. That was a wrong use of my authority instead of drawing costs upward for the sake of those I lead. A second, I said three things to observe. Second, why the restriction on women as elders? Well, Paul ties it here pretty clearly to marriage and to a husband's headship over a wife. Again, in verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, and Eve was deceived first. He says in verse 14, what's going on here? Well, in creation and the fall alike, in creation there was to be a headship, and in the fall there was the reversion of that headship. And, and, and Paul is just alluding to that fact. Yet he calls the husband to serve him by acting as the head and the wife to serve him as acting as the body. And in this, in turn, we learn elsewhere in Paul that this represents Christ, the church. God had theological lessons to teach, theological purposes for this ordering. Neither husband nor wife is better or worse. They're both created equally in God's image entirely. Neither of them should use their, their station as head or body to serve themselves. Instead, both serve the other and God, albeit from different roles. And husbands, if they are doing this right, should be undertaking the harder, more costly job. Again, that's what authority means. And so, so notice Paul's rationale starts in marriage and the family, and yet then he transfers this to the church. I don't permit a woman to teach, for Adam was formed first. So, so first in creation in the marriage, and then transfers this to the church. Well, well, why does he do that? Well, the church is the household of God, the family of God. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. 
Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. In, in other words, God intends for the ordering of marriage to be reflected in the church. Now, that doesn't mean all women in the church submit to all men in the church by no means. It does mean that God intends for elders to assume a husband-like role of watching over and leading the church. And he limits this to men, therefore. A third comment. It's worth observing, and this is not specifically from this text, but I think we see this when we pan back and look at the Bible as a whole. It's worth observing the unique nature of a husband and an elder's authority. The Bible as a whole teaches there are two types of authority, authority of command and authority of counsel. Uh, Parents and governments possess an authority of command. That means they are given a tool for discipline, an enforcement mechanism. Parents have the power of the rod. Governments have the power of the sword. Implements of enforcement, implements of discipline. Husbands and pastors also have authority, but the charge is given to the wives to submit. What charge is given to husbands or elders? Are they given an enforcement mechanism? Are they given the power of discipline? Scan your eyes over the Bible. Think of one instance where that occurs. There's none. Husbands do not have, elders do not have the power of discipline or enforcement. What this does is dramatically change the nature of how that authority is to be used. It's never to be used with a threat like you might with your three-year-old. Go to bed now because I said. Husbands and elders should never talk that way. Instead, they employ the power of love, trust, patience, forbearance, playing the long game. Live with your wives in an understanding way, says Peter to husbands. Teach with all patience, says Paul to elders. We work to win the congregation, win our wives through our gentle, loving, tender example. That's how husband authority, elder authority is to work. So if a husband ever or an elder ever begins to raise his voice, emotionally manipulate, certainly raise a hand. He is doing what is unauthorized. He is becoming a God unto himself at that moment. And he will receive the judgment of God. God even warns, husbands, you do this, I'm not even going to listen to you. I'll listen to your prayers. And the solution to bad authority is not no authority, but good authority. And good authority should leave those under it saying, yes, I'm so grateful for this man's authority in my life. Strong because of it. I got grr because of it. See? Husbands, ask your wives sometime, how are you doing there? Do they feel stronger and protected because of you? Or do they feel taken advantage of because of how you use your authority? Give me some water. Much more to say here, including what we find in the third temptation, temptation three, an undue emphasis on charisma and talent and leadership. An undue emphasis on charisma and talent and leadership. Paul, Paul doesn't actually refer to charisma and talent and leadership as such. I'm just using those words as stands-ins for anything that might draw our attention away from what he does emphasize, what does really count. Character, look, and look at the charge there. Character and godliness. In other words, prioritize in the church, Timothy, character over charisma or competence. That's what I'm looking for in the leaders, character. These other things are kind of sparkly. They, they grant, uh, grab our attention. Man, listen to him preach. He's so charismatic. Oh, he's incredible. No, 
Don't look for that. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Look for character. Uh, Sometimes Christians are surprised when they search for an elder's job description in the Bible only to discover that the authors are much more systematic in describing an elder's character. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an elder overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I think also interesting is the fact that these descriptions of an elder's character point to attributes that well, really should characterize every Christian. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of... I mean, shouldn't we all be that? And it's like, really, that's, that's what you're going to call for? Sober-minded? I mean, okay. Seems like we could aspire a little bit. The sober-minded, why, why, why that? Paul. Well, Paul doesn't require something extraordinary of elders. He deliberately is not doing that. Started seven orphanages, spearheaded a revival that thousands got saved at. Why, why, why the ordinary? Does he emphasize as exposed to the as opposed to the extraordinary? Well, because an elder's job is to demonstrate the ordinary, to be set forward as an example. He, he does the ordinary extraordinarily well, you might say. Elders don't constitute a separate class of Christians, aristocracy, peasants, medieval priests, laity. They, they aren't that. They're just Christians, Christians who are faithfully following in the way of Christ and before whom uh, we can hold up in front of the church and say, hey, Christian, is, is, is he's following Christ, so you follow Christ. There's a sense in which you, say, you might say uh, an elder is one who holds a hammer and saw and uses it and then places the hammer and saw in your hands. Or he, he sits down and plays the piano scale and says, okay, now you sit down and sit down and you play that scale. Do as I do. There, there's a sense in which an elder's whole life is show and tell. You guys remember show and tell? Here's my bear, touch my bear. Well, that's, that's an elder's life. Here's what it's like to be dedicated to the Bible. Here's what it's like to endure a season of suffering. Here's what it's like to love your wife and children. Here's what it's like to be generous and interested in justice. Here's what it's like. Do you guys remember Tom Bennett? we were planning on nominating as an elder. Here's what it's like to die well, slowly, from cancer. That's the elder's job. In other words, the New Testament spends far more ink on elder qualifications than on a job description because the qualifications are the job description. His job is to live out the Christian life before the church in word and deed so they can follow. And the fact that setting an example is central to an elder's work is one reason why you want a plurality of elders. If, if the work is to lay down a way of life that every Christian can follow, churches benefit from having more than just one. We can learn from watching from men in different vocations and different personality types and different strengths and weaknesses, you, friends, would be robbed, I guarantee it, if you had to look to just me. Instead, you have a number of men, different kinds of men. And we got John and John and Jonathan and Jonathan, real diversity, Luke and Ryan. But how different are these men's? None of us perfectly. Again, you'd be robbed by having any one of us, but as you take them together, hopefully it's beginning to come into view kind of through the fog. Okay, this is, this is the life that we are to follow as a church, right? 
Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, Timothy, so that all may see your progress. Here's your show and tell. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Yourself, your life, and on the teaching. What you're saying, your your, your deeds and your words. Persist in this, for by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Elders, persist in guarding your words and your life, for by that we will save ourselves, and in some sense, salvation depends on our persisting in this. Lest people be led astray. They shipwreck their faith. Church, pray for your elders. Men in the church, do you aspire to be an elder? Paul says, men, if you aspire to be an elder, you desire what's good. So why wouldn't you? What selfishness is holding you back? Aspiring to set an example? Shepherd? Flock? Not all men will be elders. It's a good thing to desire. Temptation four, autonomy and selfishness. In our natural fallen selves, we don't want to submit to anyone. We want to be autonomous. We don't want to serve anyone. We want to be selfish. Yet, just as the church is to be a pillar and buttress of truth, so the church is to be the household, the family of God. Our charge, therefore, is to stop being autonomous and selfish and treat one another as family, especially the vulnerable. Look at 3.15 again. We are the household of God. And and that's why chapter 5... Paul exhorts us, do not rebuke an older man, encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And then notice, look at chapter 5, Paul talks about widows from chapter, verse 3, all the way to 16. Uh, uh, Widows in that setting wouldn't have had social security checks or retirement accounts, they needed someone taking care of them, ideally family, and if not family, Paul says, the church. Church, we should be looking for ways to care for the most vulnerable among us. I asked you at the beginning, who's your Timothy? Let me ask you this. Who's your widow? Who who are the people in this church who you have a mind to pray for, to care for, to give to as you can? That's, That's what being a Christian is. Temptation five. The seductions of power and wealth. The seductions of power and wealth. Our charge, therefore, is to watch for the challenges of power and wealth. He's concerned with the temptations of power in the second half of chapter 5 with elders, and he's concerned about the temptations of wealth for most of chapter 6. Notice Notice the careful balance Paul has in this letter. He, He tells the church to care for the vulnerable, but then he does charge widows to do good works and to care for others and sit, not just sit around, as it were. At the same time, he tells us to honor authority, but then he also warns against the temptations of authority. Look at 5.17, chapter 5, verse 17. He says to honor the elders, but now look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Hold them up as an example. Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And look at verse 22 of chapter 5. Do not be hasty in the laying of hands or take part in the sins of others. Well, why shouldn't we be hasty in making a man an elder and laying on of hands is what he means by that. Well, look at verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later, and they look good in the beginning. Just wait. Your sins show up. Be hasty, making a man an elder. Let him prove his character because an elder with bad character can do terrible damage. Too often do. Therefore, Paul says, when an elder does this, he's to be held up in front of the church. You're rebuked publicly. Paul loves good authority. Paul, Jesus, hates bad authority. 
Keep our eyes on both. Always be aware, both. Aspire to the good, hate. Work against the bad. The bad lies about God, how he uses his authority. Then the bulk of chapter 6 is devoted to the temptations of wealth. Look at verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, Paul's concerned about those who teach a different doctrine. But then look at the verse, end of verse 5. This ultimately roots, he says, in a desire for financial gain, wrongful gain. Look at verse 8. He commends contentedness, even if we have a little. Verse 10, look there. Warns the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Verse 17, charge the rich not to be haughty and set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Instead of money, of course, our minds are to be fixed on God and His righteousness. Look at verse 11. Pursue righteousness. Not money, guys. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. I want you to picture two people. Person one, lots of money, wealthy, not righteous, not godly, not faith-filled, not gentle. Picture person two. Not able to provide for his or her own needs, has enough to live on and be generous as occasion allows, and yet righteous, faith-filled, loving, gentle. Which of those two persons, friends, do you want to be? Which of those two people are you working for, working toward in your job, in your family? A love of money, subtle. It sneaks in. It doesn't feel like the root of all kinds of evil. I get a little bit more and then I can doesn't feel like the root of all kind of evil, does it? Of course, that's another reason not to trust our feelings, our emotions about what's true. Well, how do we combat such misdirected love? Well, look at verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in works, to be generous, to be ready to share, or to practice giving. More than that, we're to be generous. I, I, I kind of want more, uh, do I just pray about it? Okay, pray, God, help me to get rid of wanting more. Yes, you do that, but you got to do more. You actually got to go in the opposite direction. If you're going to kill this wrongful love, you actually have to walk in the opposite direction and give. I'm going to be generous. As I'm generous, I'm writing a declaration of independence from greed. That's what I'm doing. Fighting against it. See? In general, the elders of this church would commend you start with 10% of your income. That's not an exact rule. It's just a general practice that I think is wise. But then I think we'd also say, above and beyond that, as you can, practice spontaneous giving to others. Give a little bit more than you think you can, even. Ask the Lord to provide for you. Remember the gah or to have. The gah in giving. There it is, friends. There's a global shot of 1 Timothy. Amidst all the challenges and temptations to swerve, we must fight to keep the church, God's pillar and buttress of truth, and the family of God fixed on right gospel doctrine, right living. 1 Timothy is a very practical letter. Do you know how much practical things kind of came out in his letter? Yet it also, I hope you noticed, it roots in deep, big God Theology. Look, look finally at chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and freed from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the only blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor, eternal dominion. Amen. And Paul's not finally concerned with our lot in this world. Instead, we're to fight the fight of faith. That There's the gur. How do we do that? Well, we do it by taking hold of eternal life. I'm going to grab eternal life. How do we do that? Well, we'll notice where Paul in verse 13 places himself. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Okay, here I am standing here in the presence of God and of Christ. They're behind me. Looking over my shoulder. Okay, standing there with eternity on the line, says Paul, I charge you, keep the commandment. Keep this good deposit, this gospel, everything I've instructed you. I'm standing before God, I'm charging you. Being really careful with my words, because they're, they're right there. I charge you. Keep this gospel, keep all these words of instruction I've given you throughout this book. Like Jesus before Pontius Pilate. High stakes. Is Jesus not careful with his words? Who is he standing before? Who are we standing before? Well, he, verse 15, he's the blessed and only sovereign. He is the, he's the all-powerful ruler. He's the, it says king of kings and Lord of Lords. That is to say, he's over presidents and prime ministers. He's over commanding officers and employers and husbands and elders and parents. King of kings and Lord of Lords. Take hold of eternity, he says, by realizing that he alone is immortal. He is eternal. None of us are eternal. He is eternal. Take hold of that. He dwells in unapproachable light. Think of the cherubim in Isaiah 6 covering their eyes, these fiery ones covering their eyes because he is so resplendent. Can't even, can't even look at him. You don't casually walk up to him. You're standing before him. Keep the command that I have given you. Guard this deposit that I have given you, Chevrolet Baptist Church. God is the one who deserves honor and eternal dominion. How do we take hold of eternity? We place ourselves at the feet of him who alone is immortal and possesses eternal dominion. How else will we as a church be a pillar and buttress of the truth? We live, we sit, we worship before him. Who alone is God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks and praise for this little letter written a long time ago by a man named Paul to a man named Timothy. And yet, through your spirit is perfect, inerrant, authoritative, instructive for us. Apply it to our hearts. Help us to walk in the truth, live in the truth, protect the truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.